The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. You are now listening to Dainty Thug Podcast. Please be advised, Dainty Thug Podcast contains explicit and strong language. Become a Patreon supporter. Patreon.com slash M-S-A-B Fabulize Mag F-A-B-U-L-I-Z-E-M-A-G Your support allows Dainty Thug Podcast to have access to celebrities, get to events, host meetups, and produce quality content. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. I am so excited for this episode because this episode is really informative and it has a lot of historical references and philosophies and is really layered. Um, this episode, we're going to cover feminism, um, reproductive rights. We're going to really understand the concept of progressive ideology all through the and um, capitalism and we're going to do it through the scope of activism so let me tell you how this episode came to be so a few months ago i ran across these images and they were from the 70s or late 60s and um, the title of it, of it was called Poor Black Women. And, you know, the topic was birth control pills in black children and families. And it was created by a woman named Patricia Robertson. Um, and... It was, you know, it was it was a joint statement. So let me just read you what it says. This was the response. So it says birth control pills and black children. The brothers are calling on the sisters to not take the pill. It is this system's method of exterminating black people here and abroad. To take the pill means that we are contributing to our own genocide. However, in not taking a pill, we must have a new sense of value. When we produce children, we are siding the revolution in the form of nation building. Our children must have pride in their history and their heritage and their beauty. Our children must not be brainwashed as we were. Procreation is beautiful. 
especially if we are devoted to the revolution, which means that our value system be altered to include the revolution as the responsibility. A good deal of the supremacist, in quotation white, efforts to sterilize the world's non-white out of existence is turning toward the black people of America. New trends in race control have led the architects of genocide to believe that sterilization projects aimed at the black man in the United States can cure American internal troubles. Under the cover of an alleged campaign to quote-unquote alleviate poverty, white supremacist American and their dupes are pushing an all-out drive to put rigid birth control measures into every black home. No such drive exists within the white American world. In some cities, such as Pickskill, Harlem, and also Mississippi and Alabama, welfare boards are doing their best to force black women receiving aid to submit to sterilization. This disguised attack on black future generations is rapidly picking up popularity among determined genocidal engineers. This country is prepared to exterminate people by the pill or by the bomb. Therefore, we must draw strength from ourselves. You see why there is a family planning office in the public community of Pigscale. So, we are aware men and women that you know a lot of black people are anti-abortion and definitely anti birth control pill and here's the thing I understand why there are a lot of black people who do not trust you know medical procedures and 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 vaccines and medication because there is a history of using black bodies as lab rats that is true and there is a history of you know white supremacy trying to intentionally sterilize black women that is also true however At the end of the day, women, black, white, and everybody else in between have a choice. And as a black woman, my choices and even the choices I think I have are often choices that I want to make. But I can't make them because I'm being guilt trips by patriarchy or, you know, other people, you know, don't have a baby or, you know, have a baby because, you know, you're you're building up the nation. But if I'm by myself, if I'm a single mom, if I'm poor, if I need food, it's, 
you should have picked a better man or you shouldn't have had babies before you got married. So, and it kind of like aligns with how the Republicans and the GOP feel that, you know, how, how they feel relationships are with men and, and women is either if you have sex, you should have be married. If you're not getting married, don't have sex. And we know that abstaining from sex is not a real solution. And so I, I found this and I, I posted it because I was interesting. So I want, I want to read um, the reply. Okay, so this is it's called the sister's reply. And it's Dear Brothers, September 11, 1968. So it was the late 60s. Dear Brothers, poor black sisters decide for themselves whether to have a baby or not to have a baby. If we take the pills or practice birth control in other ways, it's because of poor black men. Now here's how it is. Poor black men won't support their family won't stick by their women all they think about is the street dope and liquor women a piece of ass and their cars that's all that counts poor black women would be fools to sit up in the house with a whole lot of children and eventually go crazy sick heartbroken no place to go no sign of affection nothing Middle-class white men have always done this to their women, only more sophisticated-like. So when Whitey put out the pill and poor black sisters spread the word, we saw how simple it was not to be a fool for men anymore. Politically, we would say men can no longer exploit us sexually or for money and leave the babies with us to bring up. This was the first step in our waking up. Black women have always been told by black men that we were black, ugly, evil, bitches and whores. In other words, we were the real niggas in society, oppressed by whites, male and female, and the black man too. Now, a lot of the black brothers are into a new bag. Black women are being asked by militant black brothers not to practice birth control because it is a form of whitey committed genocide on black people well true enough but it takes two to practice genocide and black women are able to decide for themselves just like poor people all over the world whether they will submit to genocide for us Birth control is freedom to fight genocide or black women for black women and children. Like the Vietnamese have decided to fight genocide, the South American poor are beginning to fight back, and the African poor will fight back too. Poor black women in the US have the right to fight back out of our own experiences and oppression. Having too many babies stops us from supporting our children, teaching them the truth, or stopping the brainwashing, as you say, and fighting black men who still want to use us and exploit us. 
but we don't think you are going to understand us because you are a bunch of little middle class people and we are poor black women. The middle class never understands the poor because they always need to use them as a way to use black women's children to gain power for themselves. You'll run the black community with your kind of black power. You on top. Signed, Patricia Hayden, welfare recipient, Sue Rudolph, housewife, Joyce Holtz, domestic, Rita Van Lu, welfare recipient, Catherine Hoyt, grandmother, and Patricia Robinson, housewife and psychotherapist. So today I am joined with Dr. Robin Spencer, who teaches um, Black American history, African American studies, and we are going to discuss the revolutionary activist Patricia Robinson on this episode, how she helps normalize, at least put the, put the groundwork into normalizing um, black same-sex relationships and parenting, how she used her privilege, middle-class, white-skinned black woman, used her privilege to uplift poor black women, how she was able to educate and use her background in counseling and therapy to bring mental health awareness into the community. So there's a lot of layers to this woman. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Let me know what you think. And I will be talking to you all soon. All right, later. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Whatever time you hear this. I am so glad that you all are tuning in today because we have something very important to discuss. I love the opportunity to highlight and introduce audiences to someone they should know, but they may not know. So today I have a very special guest, Dr. Robin Spencer. Thank you for coming on today, Dr. Spencer. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to share. Yes, I am glad that you're here. So not too long ago, I shared a Facebook uh, post of a interaction communication with someone that goes by the name of uh, Patricia Robinson. And I believe it was dated to like the late 70s, maybe, or maybe it was the late 60s. I'm not, I can't remember the dates really, but it was a call of action for, from black men to ask black women to not take birth control pills. And the reasoning, which is, you know, some of the reasons that we hear now in 2020 is that at this particular time, uh, this call to action was asking black women to not take birth control pills because taking birth control pills is a form of genocide to the black race. And in response to that um, is where we, well, I was introduced to Pat Robinson because she had a really badass reply was like, you know, black women are poor, they're disenfranchised, and now you want us to keep babies 
when there's even when the men don't even want to stay around and raise the baby. So what are we supposed to do? So I shared it and it got, you know, it did its round on Facebook and Twitter. And that's how I met Dr. Robin Spencer. And she told me that she was working on a biography of Patricia Robinson. So can you tell us more about that? And tell us who Patricia Robinson is. Yes, yes. Well, that uh, document was from 1968. And uh, when I saw it circulating on social media, I was so happy. Um, It's called Poor Black Women. um, And it was about birth control pills and black children. And Patricia Robinson helped to spearhead um, the responses to that by Poor Black Women. So it was great to see that piece of my research make it around into the general conversation. So Patricia Robinson um, was a Black feminist activist. She was someone who is relatively unknown despite her importance in Black, um, Black life and Black political culture. She was part of the Murphy newspaper family. She was um, born in 1926 in Maryland. Uh, She was educated in Massachusetts. Uh, She grew up in the 1950s, so she experienced the Cold War. She was radicalized by that. And she became a Marxist. She became an activist in New York. She was a psychotherapist. She was a feminist activist. She wrote several very important political and theoretical uh, treatises, we can say, or speeches and um, articles and essays that were published in important feminist magazines and journals at the time. And she also worked with different political organizations. Her life kind of represents a different way of looking at this time period in U.S. history, which is oftentimes told to us through the lives of important men and through the lives of organizations like the Black Panthers or um, people like Malcolm X. Um, But she was someone who was a grassroots activist. She worked with working class people. And she also had a sensibility around mental health. Right. So as I mentioned, she was a psychotherapist and she was a Marxist. So she was all about getting people to question capitalism. And she did that in all realms, whether she was talking to you about what you might have felt was your quote unquote personal problems in your family. She would remind you that those problems were never disconnected from the structures of society, the structures of the economy, um, et cetera or whether she was mobilizing people to have a critical perspective on U.S. foreign policy, like what was happening in the Vietnam War at the time. Uh, She was very much connected to a very strong critique of U.S. society at the time. And she was also, as you said, badass. She was um, uncompromising in her beliefs. She was very interested in talking to people Um, using reason. She was very intellectual, cerebral. She loved encouraging people to read. She was the owner of like eight dictionaries. Like that's the kind of person she was. She started study groups, reading groups, and she encouraged people to read Fanon, Marx, 
um, Rosa Luxemburg, uh, all of the brilliant feminist and Marxist thinkers uh, of the time, as well as literature and poetry. So she was a well-rounded thinker. She was also a mother. She was married with three children um, and a homemaker um, as well. So she really, I think, represents so much of what American society was like at this time and allows us to think about it in all of these different ways. So um, let's start about, let's start with like her background. Now, from what you told me, she grew up pretty middle class. How does, I guess when I see a lot of anti-capitalism work, how can middle class people, I guess, combat capitalism? Or like what steps do they take? Like do they you know, use their privilege to just help lower income and more vulnerable people? Or do they try to go for the top and like dismantle it from the top? Like what, what was her, what was her blueprint for success? Well, she was part of the black elite. So she grew up like as part of a family, the Murphy family that owned the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper. It was the longest running black owned family newspaper in the U.S. And so she grew up with a lot of class privilege, despite the fact it was Jim Crow America, segregation, um, violence um, at all turns. She still was able to maintain that bubble of privilege access um, economic support. So I think that because she was connected to those political traditions that still were part of that community, the reality was that despite segregation, even if you were an elite Black person, you could not merge into, into the upper echelons of white society, right? You, you went into the upper echelon of Black society and you had and considered yourself, you know, oftentimes uh, part of a tradition of racial uplift, right? So she came from that tradition of helping the unfortunate, right? But that could have taken many, many turns, right? That could have been philanthropy, for example. It didn't have to turn into Marxism. For her, I think because she was connected to um, people who were Marxist, her family members who were involved in uh, these economic ideals that questioned things, uh, questioned the fundamental basis of society, that she grew up perhaps with that seed planted. And then when she was looking around in the 1950s, a time of heightened repression with the Cold War, um, she talks about being really influenced by um, the murder of of the, um, I'm forgetting their name, the Rosenbergs, the Rosenberg trial, um, the Rosenbergs who were killed and um, accused communists. She talked about being so influenced by the how that trial was playing out in the public and also the way that you couldn't talk about it, right? You couldn't come out and openly be a supporter because of the fear of communism that was so real and the very real repercussions of, you know, identifying yourself as somebody who was part of that left tradition. So 
I think she was somebody who then threw herself into reading. And the minute that she could, she talked about how the Cuban Revolution had a big influence on her. And she had a chance to go to Cuba. And when she came back, she threw her lot in with the working class people. So I think for her, she was able to make that change because for her, it wasn't just sort of an intellectual shift like or a sense of helping. She really believed that the fate of the world, that um, she really believed that her individual fate and the fate of, you know, humanity lay in transforming the relationships of power. And she really saw that they were you know, the people at the bottom of the economy who were considered um, the, the bottom of the political system, that they had the potential to really transform the country and even the world, right? Because I said she went to Cuba, she was reading about what was happening in China and in other parts of the world, in Africa, African revolutions, Vietnam. So she really believed that you know, a new world was possible, as we would say. So for her, you know, when she is working with the poor, she is doing it with this sensibility, not just like I'm, you know, on sort of a looking into a looking down, let's say, or trying to bring people up. She's trying to kind of uproot an entire system. And she's not also centering herself. She was very humble as a person. It was never about putting a microphone in front of her face, getting her name out there or anything like that. She was somebody who was very interested in empowering other people. She was in, in the tradition of people like Ella Baker. She was a teacher. She wanted people to empower themselves, go out, create their own organization, create their own things, figure out their own way forward. She wanted to just be a person who could help provide ideas, resources, um, to help clear the capacity in their, you know, sometimes um, in their thought processes. And again, I think it was important that she was a psychotherapist because she helped people to understand that, you know, the impact that maybe poverty was having, you know, on stress levels and how stress levels could impact human relationships and how discrimination could impact, um, you know, the way you're moving through the world and the way that the hierarchies that you see in society could be mirrored in your own family. And mm -hmm. you have to figure that out to go to move forward. You just can't be like, I'm fighting the man and then come home and be, um, you know, oppressing your children or be oppressing your partners, right? The, if you're looking for freedom for the race, you also have to be thinking about freedom in your human relationships too. So she was part of a group of, you know, radical psychotherapists at the time who were on the left, who were really, you know, trying to transform everything. How, how do you, how would you explain what radical motherhood would look like for her? Well, uh, she's mothering at the time of the women's movement, at the time of debates around feminism, around Black power and Black pride and Black consciousness. 
you know, she's mothering during this upsurge in civil rights, this anti-imperialist movement. So for her, you know, she very much, I think, wanted to open the door to those kinds of political involvements for her kids. So I think for her, radical mothering meant um, talking, I think, to her children about what was going on in the world. I think sometimes today there's a sense of shielding, like we can't let the kids um, get too enmeshed in what's happening. You know, sometimes even now at what's happening in, you know, 2020 United States, you know, you get the sense that the school is trying to filter or wants to filter. But we know for, especially for children of color, black children, you know, sometimes they're, they're in that world. They can't, they can't be, there is no shelter for them in the same way because the world is a war zone for them oftentimes, depending on where they are. So there's no sort of safe harbor. And she could have made a safe harbor for her kids where they were sheltered and they didn't know what mommy was doing and let's not talk about oppression or we don't need to know about hunger or, um, you know, what's happening in Vietnam or, or China or Cuba or Tanzania at this political moment. But she very much took it on to um, bring her politics home. And she did that through her reading, um, the books that her children would see around, uh, through her conversations at the dinner table, through the uh, types of activism that her children would see her uh, taking part in, and even through the ways that her kids would kind of find things normalized. And then when they would go to school and try to bring those ideals from home there, they would kind of find that, oh, okay, everyone doesn't think that Cuba is a great place. Mom went to Cuba. And when I go to school and talk about mom's trips to Cuba, you know, everyone is not thrilled by that. In fact, no one is. In fact, you know, I'm facing repercussions because of that. You know, I think that sometimes kids get into the bubble of home and they're used to certain things, but they'd be like, oh, we're vegan here. We don't eat meat. And then you go to school and everyone's like, what are you eating? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and you have to like, oh, in my family, we do it like this. It's a moment of education for the kids. So she was very much like that, very transparent with her politics. I think she saw herself as a nurturer. She, you know, she knit. I, I love, you know, that she was that person who knit, she cooked, she baked. You know, she was somebody who performed those domestic, you know, that domestic labor, that social reproduction of, you know, keeping her family going in that way. Yet, she still um, took on the additional, you know, political work. And I think her kids saw all of that. And I think it was also probably an exhausting juggle for her to sort of make all of that work. How, and from what all the information that you know, what, you know, we we can kind of gain for her a view of, you know, um, abortion and, and reproductive rights are. But how, if you know, how does she explain those rights to women that are more vulnerable? Because a lot of women fall for the, I don't take birth control, I don't believe in abortion, not because it's simply their choice, but because, you know, they've been pretty much programmed and led to believe, especially as black women, that 
if you, you know, have an abortion or if you take birth control pills, you are like a traitor to your race. Right. Yes. Yeah. So she definitely, I think, was operating in a context where, you know, there were lots of different political ideals about like how to move the black community forward, what was necessary for black liberation, what did black liberation look like? And, you know, for some you know, patriarchy was the answer to that. Like, let's build the black, as a, you know, a heteronormative black family. That's the way the black community is going to move forward. That was sometimes coming from public policy, whether it be the Moynihan Report. Sometimes that was coming from um, our black psychiatrists and psychologists or even the black leadership. Um, coming from more conservative bent. So she came into that really um, as part of a movement of radical women, people like Flo Florence Kennedy, people like, um, you know, the, even the Black Women's Health Project, people that were raising questions around Black women and what would be called later reproductive justice. There's a whole... Um, thick literature on the contributions of Black women to these ideals of, you know, so-called family planning, reproductive justice. What does it mean for um, Black women to have choice, right? Not just choice to end their pregnancy, but choice to raise their children with dignity. And because she was interacting with women who oftentimes already had children um, and were making decisions about more children in this context or with young people who were coming up with messages around sexual freedom and more opportunities to have access to birth control while at the same time restrictions on women's bodies while restrictions on male bodies were not being discussed or described or corralled or you know shuttered in the same way. She was someone that was interested in, you know, really highlighting, you know, this ideal of women having sexual pleasure, as well as having choice and control over what that would result in or not. And I think that she saw birth control as part of her ammunition. I mean, there's a great quote um, where she basically says that she was armed with birth control. Like that is how she thought that birth control literally armed women. And if you think about just the terror of that, every single time you engage in sexual intercourse, you could be making a decision around parenting, right? This, this was the reality for so many women, right? Before the days of legalized birth control, before the days when, um, you know, termination of pregnancy was was legal right to think about freeing women from that burden of worry right so they could just simply live their lives right that is what she saw birth control doing for women and to have those conversations and to have them in a real way you know because she was um you know the time that she was doing this she was probably in her late 20s, um, maybe speaking to women who were teenagers younger than her, and maybe even sometimes her age a little older. You know, I think she was really a relatable figure, uh, maybe an auntie, you know, who was coming in with great, you know, advice and who herself was a mother 
and who could speak from that perspective and who was coming in with, um, not alone, you know, coming in alongside of all of the other ways that women could be connected to an entire network and movement of women seeking to um, empower themselves and to gain control of their bodies. And, you know, that movement continues, that movement continues today. And, you know, Black women, women of color, trans women, I mean, they, you know, that is the forefront of that movement. That's really interesting. Um, I read, well, there's this phrase that a lot of people that parrot, they parrot the whole, you know, you know, white feminism taught black women how to hate black men or, Mm -hmm. you know, white feminism orchestrated like this, this movement to divide the black community. So I did a little research, you know, because this had to come from somewhere. Like people who just don't say things out of nowhere. So in my research, I found that in the late 50s, uh, there was a prominent white feminist who wrote a book basically, you know, detailing what feminism is. But her feminism was geared towards suburban white women stay-at-home moms, moms that drink martini and play bridge while the kids are at school. And in this book, she pretty much said that Black women are the reason, you know, there's so much dysfunction in in the Black community because instead of them being home with their children, they're out working like men. Mm. And... That sentiment of, you know, not seeing Black women as women, um, dismissing, you know, the um, economic disadvantage that a lot of Black women are at, led to, you know, um, Ebony Magazine, like a few years later, like in the 60s, pretty much taking that manifesto and putting it into their print magazine and saying that, you know, black women need to be more feminine and black women need to, you know, let the man lead. And then that turned into the whole manifesto from another politician who basically said, you know, black women are the reason why there's so much crime in the community because they don't want to, because they want to work. They don't want to be inside the home and, 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 you know, they are trying to be like pretty much just basically saying that, you know, um, black women want to emulate white feminism. So in conclusion, the whole idea that um, black women are trying or influenced by white women. I mean, not only is it a lie, it is a, it is, it was manufactured from white women which is wild to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't want to give credit to black women uh, when it comes to topics of feminism because they don't see black women as women. They see us as everything but women. They see us as caretakers. They see us as fixer-uppers and, and you know, for our labor. But actual agents of change they don't want to see us as that. 
Yeah. Lang. I mean, I think history is such a good way of clearing out some of the misconceptions around, you know, the role of feminism in the Black community. There's a long history of feminist ideas. There's so many great books on this, but even before I say the two books that I'm going to recommend, I'd say talk to the elder women in the community and don't say the word feminism. Talk to them about their lives and you will hear stories of women's strength, endurance, um, partnership and support for all elements of their community, you know, the women and men in their community. I mean, that tends to be, you know, the history of Black women. Anytime, there's a great quote by Anna Julia Cooper, Black educator extraordinaire, um, where she says, when and where I enter, then and there, the whole race enters with me. And I love that quote because it just speaks to the fact that whenever Black women have opened doors, they have not just rushed through the door and like dragged their sisters through the door and slammed the door on the brothers. Never. You know, they have opened the doors for everybody, men, women, children, elders, you know, the disabled. I mean, not under every circumstance, but there, you know, there have been many moments right? Because of course, feminists have their blind spots. Feminism does not preclude problematic, um, you know, engagements and, you know, being above criticism, certainly not. But we can definitely look at the ways that um, we can say that within the Black feminist tradition, there has been a long and, you know, recorded history of um, alliances with with male allies, oftentimes in the face of attacks by, you know, people who don't support the tradition or want to rip it down. There are two great books, like you were saying about all the women being white, all the women, mm -hmm. Black women being seen as women. There's a great book called, But Some of Us Are Brave, All the Women Are White, All the Blacks Are Men. Right. Mm. It's just that same idea that when you think about women, you tend to be talking about white women's experience. When you think about black people, you tend to be talking about black men's experience. So where do black women fit in, you know, into those categories? If when you talk about women, it tends to be white women's experiences. If you're talking about race, it tends to be black men's experiences. Um, uh, the idea of some of us are brave, um, I think, is part of that. And then the second book is called Words of Fire by Beverly Guy Sheftall. And it's just a compilation of just speeches from Black women from the beginnings of this country up until, you know, semi-recently. And it just gives you a sense of all sorts of feminist speeches um, over time. So I love those two, those two books because it really gives you a different sensibility of it. The idea that white women somehow created feminism and the Black women kind of jumped on the bandwagon it's just so historically inaccurate. I think for Pat uh, Robinson, she really saw feminism as a way to ground her anti-imperialism. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
talk about to talk about mothering, to talk about um, wellness and mental health. She saw it as a way of bringing everything together in a way that sometimes people think feminism is a women's issue. Wait, you're breaking up a little bit. I hear that. Okay, I have not. Yeah. So for her, feminist issues and women's issues were issues of war and power and poverty, not just, you know, what people might narrowly conceive of, oh, well, you know, schooling of children is a feminist issue. She would be like, yep as well as U.S. foreign policy in Afghanistan is a feminist issue as well, right? So she was involved in all levels of, of justice work. And that's what she felt she had to do as a Black feminist. And that is what I think Black feminists have, have done, radical Black feminists anyway. I mean, she was a radical Black feminist. You definitely have liberal Black feminists. You have, you know, there's a, you know, as with any tradition, there are lots of political tendencies, not all of which are progressive, but she considered herself, or I consider her to be a feminist that was on the left. How does a woman, how, how can Black women be more radical? Especially right now in this culture, because I feel like we're in the the height of like pop stand culture, like a lot of us, and I'm including myself included, including myself as well, because I'm not on the outside of it. We look at some of our problematic faves as a way to, as a, and with hopes that our problematic faves will do something to shake up the table. Like I'm talking about like an Oprah, because she's a billionaire and other rich, affluent black people. How can we be more radical in these times right now? And what do you think Pat would want us to do or at least engage in? I think that's an excellent question. It's so hard because I think sometimes, you know, I feel like Black women have been asked to do so much, right? Can we just be sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think one thing I would say is just to... Think about that long tradition that I mentioned that Pat uh, came from of service to community. And I think that that is still part of what Black women do oftentimes, holding up families, communities, being the pillars, being the connectors, being the bridges. That's what we do. But to also maintain that critical perspective and making sure that we're feeding our minds. Because I feel like we're kind of in a society with a lot of junk food available, readily available to us, right? If you just think about like the junk food that's available in our neighborhoods and things like that. So how do we feed ourselves with things that are going to enrich us? And one of that, one of the things to do is to turn to history, learn about the warriors of the past, nurture the warriors in our present. Make sure that our girls are growing up, even if you grew up and you didn't learn about, you know, the great figures of Black history, make sure that our girls know, know who those figures are so they have 
a, a new horizon for themselves that is beyond Beyonce and Michelle Obama and Oprah. Yes, those are big cultural iconic figures, but let's put people who have tried to bring justice, tried to transform the conditions of the poor. Let's make sure they know who Ella Baker is, who Septima Clark is, who, you know, Diane Nash is, and who, you know, all of the amazing women who are part of the Black Freedom Movement. Let's make sure they know who those people are, not just the Rosa Parks story 5,000 times. And if we tell that Rosa Parks story, tell it anew, tell them that Rosa Parks was about stamping out the sexual abuse of Black women. Tell them that Rosa Parks in the 70s supported Malcolm X, that Rosa Parks went to the Black Panther School. Give them that Rosa Parks, you know, not just Rosa on the bus. So I feel like we need to be more discerning. We need to sidestep the readily available junk food. Yes, we need to rest. We need to clear our minds. We need to, you know, not be on at every moment. We deserve those moments of self-care and rest. But um, I see a proliferation of book clubs in our community spearheaded by Black women. Mm-hmm. Those are the places where we can read different kind of books together. I see that, you know, that that's one space for Black women. I see a rise in the number of Black women who are coming together to um to discuss different issues, uh, an increase in Black women who are spearheading mentorship organizations aimed at younger, you know, younger girls. I love that. I feel like those are the areas that we should be supporting. Everybody has something to give. I mean, Pat, like I said, she literally was like one person. She was not like a starter of groups. She was part of a few organizations, but she was not, again, somebody who was out there with the microphone. Everybody is not like that. You know, she wouldn't want to be the Dr. King or the, you know, the Malcolm X with the with the microphone. She was a behind the scenes person who built relationships, who was a teacher, who was an educator. And that's something that we all can do. Because I think that sometimes we think we have to be that fire brand or the, you know, have to have a certain personality to be a leader. But we can all be leaders, whether it's even just saying, hey, look, I got six nieces and nephews. I'm going to make sure that they're going to know that it's not just February for Black History Month and they're going to come out. By the time they're 18, they're going to know 18, you know, important Black men, women, queer people in history, at least. And that's my responsibility to these kids in my family. And they're going to know that that's one thing you can do. And then you're going to say, well, maybe they can get together with a few of their little friends and let me start a little organization now or once a month, let me start a Saturday school, you know, pandemic, kids don't have anything to do with their kids. What about, let me start a Sunday program for my little cousin's, you know, friends, you know, once a month, they can watch a movie and we can discuss it politically. You know, let me just look at what they're looking or listening, listen to what they're listening to. Because sometimes kids don't want to be like, oh, it's all educational. But if you just take them where they are, hey, let's look at what you looked at. I do that sometimes with my daughter, like, okay, you looked at this, I'm going to look at it too. And then we will discuss, hey, I saw some colorism in this little series that you were looking at. You know, let's discuss that. Why is it that the people who were the girlfriends all look like this? What, what do we think is being said here? Right. These are the ways that we can engage kids. And I think that being 
educator black women you know they went to the south after the civil war and became that those teachers newly freed men and women right so educators patricia murphy robinson was an educator she even though she didn't she was a teacher formally but she created different educational environments freedom schools where people could learn and i do think that that would be my charge for today's black woman just to think about how can you create a freedom school in your life it doesn't have to be big it could just be like i said your family it could be your book club it could be your church group but how are you forwarding a conversation about freedom in your circle i think that's what patricia robinson would want us to do and i think she would want us to think about capitalism right that was something that she was very passionate about she really wanted people to have understanding about the economic system she wanted people to understand how things work and to that part of that would help us to understand our choices right there's something to be said to understand that just to take just to take a sneaker i mean just to take a sneaker and to sit some young people down and talk about the history of the sneaker where was it made who made it what did they get paid and why are we paying 100 times sometimes what it was cost to make this thing to some corporation right that's capitalism and taking capitalism and not making it into something that feels like oh i'm not a, you know i'm not an economics professor how can i break down capitalism to people kids adults we understand capitalism we, we know what it is <laughs> and we can see it in the you know the things that we pay for all the things that are now free during this pandemic moment that we're in in 2020 all of a sudden things that used to cost a lot are somehow now free and all of a sudden the people that were fighting for dignity and a minimum wage are now essential workers right mm-hmm. this is a moment capitalism is becoming very clear right unemployment the, the the lines that we see i think that there's an opening right here right now and there always these openings um and just to have people do it, just take women say let, let, let's talk about hair let's start with this this wig where does we come from <laughs> whose hair is this how much did they get paid to give this hair how much are we being are asked to to, to charge being charged for this hair what does this mean you know that's capitalism that's breaking down capitalism in our lives and that is what she was about just taking the big concepts and bringing it down into something that you could see and it's not about shaming people wagging your fingers no 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 don't participate but let me tell you once you start to figure those things out you start to make some different choices it's just like when you go to those fast foods and they tell you uh salt content is this when you see that salt content it's kind of hard to go there in the same frequency that you used to maybe you still go but you know it's it's hard to keep going <laughs> what you used to when you're looking at that calorie counter or that that sodium list so we want to you know she made things clear in that way she let you know what was on the menu and what it was costing you and i think that is the that is the charge for this generation of of sisters i think i read something that alluded to the context of 
how marriage can be used as an oppressive tool for women, specifically black women, because that's always kind of like stressed, you know, the, the traditional family union, the traditional family nucleus that's kind of used to berate. And even at times, you know, um, belittle black women in the context in the context of Robinson, how do you, I mean, we know she was married and she had children of her own, but what do you think her views would be on the, you know, the traditional idea of marriage, especially with black women in that context of oppression? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I would have to sort of think that through because I think, you know, she if you think about her time period, you know, she talked about sort of, um, you know, in the biography I'm writing, we'll see her go from being that young girl who got married with beautiful lace and long gloves and the biggest church, you know, and had a reception with hundreds of people to somebody who, you know, was quite different. So I'm guessing her views on marriage probably changed over time. But, you Mm -hmm. know, she was at a time, she got married at a time where women, you know, were basically junior people. You know, she couldn't have bank accounts. You were, you know, like your husband's authority was a big thing in your life um, in terms of your ability to make transactions, to... Um, operate in the world financially, right? That was that was the reality. So I know that being in a marriage protected her. Um, it certainly provided some, you know, companionship. It provided financial stability, um, given that you know she was coming from a, a background of financial being well off. But I think her husband also coming from that kind of background, the fact that they both worked, I think was one of the reasons that empowered her to go off and do all of this work with people without the fear of, you know, being reliant on a certain type of nine to five job. Right. So her marriage did provide that economic base. So she, I think, understood the economics of marriage. Right. So she read as Marxist theorists talked about the economics of marriage and what that meant, as well as the, you know, the ways that the family structure um, sometimes mirrored uh, the worker boss relationship in the world with women being those unpaid labor. And we see this now that we're in this 2020 pandemic moment. And it's so clear exactly what all of those so-called stay-at-home mothers were doing all day. All of the labor is now incredibly visible, you know, in terms of the work that it takes to keep a household going that maybe was invisible before and it wasn't conceived of as labor. So she understood and she also did that labor in addition to her other labor. So I think that she would have like a pragmatic view on marriage. Um, I'm still sort of figuring out her her persona in some way. I don't know if she also had a romantic view of marriage or a flowery view of marriage. You know what I mean? Like 
about love and, and those sorts of things. She read a lot of poetry. She read Baldwin. She read fiction. So I know that there's also that emotional connection that draws us to a partner. I think she would definitely respect that. She was a lover of people. But did that have to result in a marriage, let's say, that sort of legal contract? Something maybe that she would question. Why she would advise uh, people today, the institution of marriage in the United States is is a shifting one. Um, So many marriages, um, marriages have changed. (laughs) Very true. What do you think? Oh, well, why do you think in the context of, you know, the response that Pat did to the whole notion of birth control, why do you think, you know, men specifically have so many issues with birth control? At the time, you know, there is a long history of um, sterilization abuse. Mm -hmm. women, women of color, poor women, women who were considered to be um, mentally incompetent or um, mentally, um, what is the term looking for? Uh, The the right term, but women who maybe were disabled as well or considered disabled were forcibly sterilized. There's a long history of this. And I think that that has given, because of that history of sort of abuse at the hands of the medical establishment, you know, I think that's part of the reality of how many African-Americans view any sort of you know, whether it be a vaccine or or anything that's coming from the medical establishment. But I do think that for birth control in in particular, there was a sense that the 60s were a time where the Black community was under duress, uh, facing all of this violence, and that building the Black nation, the Black heteronormative family was key to the survival of the community. There was the fact that I'm sure that some people associated children with virility, with, um, you know, those sorts of concepts as well. I think that, yeah, I don't know I have really have not read a lot of the research in this area to say much more than that. I can just talk about what I, I, I've read people who were involved in different movements saying about why uh, they were critical of birth control. This idea of birth control as genocide, as harming the community was certainly, um, certainly, I think, like in the video that you put up on Facebook, they said birth control was the system's method of exterminating Black people here and abroad. To take the pill means that we are contributing to our own genocide. That's 
reproduce children, we are aiding in the revolution in the form of nation building. And then it goes on to talk about the role of children. Um, so there was this kind of idea that reality. now Pat comes in with her very real on the ground with these women saying, hey, look, it's one thing to talk about theoretical children, but physical children need pampers, <laughs> you know, diapers. They need to be fed. They need to be loved. They need to be educated. They need to be nurtured. And who's going to do that work for these children that are produced, you know, to build the nation? You know, are these men going to step up? And looking at the evidence of these women I've been working with, that has not been the case. So it's actually irresponsible to promote for these women to continue to have children. And these women stood up and said, no, we're not doing it. <laughs> you know, because it totally changes our lives. And it's, it's a task that we carry on by ourselves for the most part. That's really, that's really cool. That's really interesting, too, because I think, you know, even in the context of now that, you know, people are just anti-abortion and they want to limit what birth control women have access to, you know, not just black women, but women in general. Um, while I understand why black people are, you know, um, apprehensive when it comes to like, you know, uh, vaccines and medicines and things like that you know over the course of the decades since the pill has been made available now we're in an age where like men are in, in power and, they're in, and they are controlling the law they still don't want us to get abortions they want to limit you know birth control and I don't understand you know in the scope of patriarchy you don't you hate you hate abortion you hate birth control but women are still becoming single mothers across the board yes and it's funny that some single mothers are heralded and given television shows and other single mothers are demonized and called welfare queens interesting how Work. Yes, I look. I have to write a lot of parenting news, and like, I am so befuddled at the concept of sixteen and pregnant and teen moms, and like, they're all in these you know flyover states that no one wants to visit, like Iowa and Indiana and places like that, and like these teens are having these children and having one, two, two, three. And, like, you know, that is okay because I guess, you know, they're straight. But I don't understand, you know, why why it's okay for one person to be, you know, one group of people to be okay and then another group of people to be the worst. I mean, I do know, but it's not fair. Yes, I definitely... You know, I agree. And I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I did see that it talked about how um, single parenting is on the decline. And it's talked about just the changing nature of, 
even family life and choices, things are different. Lots of women are, by the time they get quote unquote married, if they so choose that choice, sometimes they've had the children, you know, it's not like marriage is no longer like the ticket that you need in order to start the adult life anymore. Mm-hmm. By the time people get married nowadays, they've had the children, they've, you know, they've maybe been living with the partner. It's it's different. It's just not, I think times have changed. And I do not uh, think that the standards or the standards that we, that, that some people like to hold up as these sort of mystical, unchanging, fixed values have adapted to the reality. And if when you look at it, who is who who can meet those values? If it's not the quote unquote heartland of the United States, it's not urban United States, it's not rural United States, then why is it even being held up as a as something to aspire to or something to bludgeon people with if many people are now making the choice to start their families you know, at a time when they feel is 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 works for them. Like why why is it the concern of of others? You know, so Tell... to... go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh that's okay. I was gonna read a line from um the the um the document that uh Robinson wrote where she talks about uh, poor black women, where she says, um, it is time to speak to the whole question of the position of the poor black women in this society. We have to for we have the foregoing analysis of their perspective. And she talks about the real sense that there was a myth that black women were free, that they weren't as oppressed as black men. Right, because they were women and they weren't um, victimized in the same way. That was the perception. So her response to the birth control question was really an analysis of Black women's realities and making that visible. So I thought it was interesting to think about that that was part of the response as well. That it wasn't just a response about the narrow question of birth control. It was a larger response to say, hey, this is Black women's condition. This is what's going on inside of the Black family. And it was coming from her work with, with Black women um, as well and kind of thinking about how to, um, to make that real. And she also, in that same document, articulated a response alongside five other women. Mm-hmm. Black women have always been told that we were Black, ugly, evil, bitches, and whores, right? Um, and then it talks about Vietnam. Like the Vietnamese have decided to fight genocide, the South American poor beginning to fight back. And the African poor will fight back too. Poor Black women in the U.S. have to fight back. So again, it speaks to not just a conversation about is birth control good or bad, but this these are women whose minds have been expanded and who are making connections, who are saying our situation here 
is connected to this global reality. And what you brothers want us to do, we're not doing it. And we're not doing it because we're making individual choices. We're doing it because we're a part of this large global movement of women. Right? And that is how they saw themselves. And some of the women that signed, welfare recipient, grandmother, welfare recipient. Yeah, I housewife. thought that was so awesome. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really awesome. So um, what have you learned from Pat Robinson that has impacted you personally? Ooh, that's a good question. I guess I have learned... I have learned that it is important to connect, to sort of make the connections. As a professor, I read so many books. Like if you come into my office or my home space, you'll see that there are like hundreds of books. When you go into Pat Robinson's home, you see she has over a thousand books there. Yet, her books don't just live in her mind. She took those books and she took that knowledge and she shared it. She was almost a library. And she encouraged people to read theory, read people like Marx and Lenin and Mao. And she would give them dictionaries. She would talk through the concepts with them. And for me, but that is what I took away um, from Pat Robinson, this idea of breaking things down, that it's just so important that that is what our job is as educators, is to take the materials that we have and as tools and not just see them as tools for us, or not even that it's a tool that we're putting into someone else's hand, like, oh, I'm giving my student this fact about Malcolm X, but I have to think about having them understand that it's a tool and they can pass that tool on to somebody else. It's mm -hmm. not just now that I taught it to you and now you've got it. You know, she constantly made it almost like a hot potato. Like you got the knowledge and you, you, know, you had to get it, use it, pass it on, you know, with that kind of quickness. And that is what um, I kind of have taken away from just my initial study of her and her life is this idea of sharing the knowledge. She, she did that um, through talk therapy. She, you know, just the power of communication, right? Being a talker and the power of talking to people, sitting with people, sitting with their kids, she offered babysitting, you know, as a way of just helping people out. And that was one way of getting to, you know, you get to know their kids, you get to know them. Uh, people trusted her because of that. She just made herself useful. And that's so different than now. I just feel like sometimes when people with the resources come into a situation, they come in and they take it over. It's all about them. It becomes their thing. You know, they become somehow... The, the focal point and they take up all the air and she was able just to go into situations and sit with people and just, you know, sit alongside of them and share. 
And that is, I think, uh, one of the most powerful parts of her legacy. That is another type of leadership that's just as powerful as standing up with a microphone somewhere. Um, she was able to pass on in the tradition of people like Ella Baker um, and Septima Clark and all of the great Black women educators. You know, she I sort of see her in that light. And, you know, I'm a Black woman educator, so I am inspired by that. Let's talk about her her documentary film. Uh, when I first connected with you, there was a limited screening about her film. Could you just tell us, you know, what's all in the film? And we need to get this out to the masses as soon as possible. Yes, there's a wonderful effort um, that's being undertaken. Um, I'm part of an archive committee with um, Pat Robinson's daughter, Robin. Robinson Kirkpatrick and her mentee, one of her mentees, uh, Lupe family, to just keep her memory alive. Uh, so Lupe has written a uh, fictional work um, called To Face It, which includes a character in it that's based on Pat, whose name is Pam. So she's kind of being kept on in the literary tradition, her teachings, and her daughter has upkept her home archives in Florida. And part of what Lupe is doing as a creative person is to take some of the footage from interviews that she did with Robinson and making them into educational videos that can be shared with people so that her legacy can, can live on. So um, she has a trailer uh, for the first part of it. Um, it appears in two parts. It's called um, Black Revolutionary Molecule. And you can see parts of it, um, arrange to see parts of it by contacting her directly. Uh, so she screens that. And I'm not quite sure the, the long range plans for it. I'm not sure that the goal is to kind of get it on television and let it be like something long. I think there's a sense of trying to create shorter videos of maybe half an hour, 20 minutes, really understanding that for this generation, sometimes shorter visual content goes over better. People are yes. willing to, sit mm -hmm. and, you know, watch something that's half an hour, 20 minutes and have a discussion more than they're willing to you know, go through an hour or something or an hour and a half. So the idea is to get, you know, put these into like short, interesting, uh, short videos that can be shared where people can learn about Pat and then have a conversation about what her ideals were, learn more about the archives. We're also fundraising to upkeep the archives and keep her, her legacy alive um, as well. And I'm also writing a biography of her as part of that part of that project. So there's some exciting things that are that are going on in terms of preserving preserving her history. So we're hoping to put together um, some kind of online content to go along with this interview that would allow an audience to see Pat talking. Um, whether it be in a 10-minute segment or a little more, and then to hear from people who knew her and to talk about some of her ideas. Because when you hear her talk about things, you're like, oh, my God, how did she know? She talks about, like, prison at a time. She talks about it, like, before this massive increase in the prison population, where she talks about 
people becoming extraneous and um, the need to warehouse people. And then you're like thinking, oh my gosh, she's talking about prisons. She talks about mechanization and how labor is going to be shifted when um, now we'll have machines to do things. And whether we think about ourselves self-checking out or self, all the things we do that have the word self in front of it, that was once a person or human being <laughs> that did that work. And what did it mean to sort of shift work away from you know, people to these machines, you know, to hear her talk. She's so um, visionary in terms of what she's thinking about. Um, it's, it's, it's really brilliant. So I, I really hope that more people will have the opportunity to just hear from her directly. That is so awesome. You know, I hope I want to uh, um, I aspire to be like her in a lot of ways. And I think she's a good activist, you know, a good model for what a good act, what activism looks like and how to use your privileges intra-community, in-community. And um, I am looking forward to your work that you're putting together for her on based on her life. Can you tell us more about your upcoming book that you're doing on her? Yes, I'm very excited to... Um, <sighs> be her biographer. Um, I call it a passion project. It grew up like a wildflower. It was nothing that I said, oh, I have time to do this. I'm working on other projects. But when I learned about her, I just felt like more people had to know about her because I just feel like she did so many things that people just don't think that Black women did or don't believe that they did all of the things, you know, because just to be the type of thinker that she was, you know, the books that she read. I mean, she's reading European philosophy. She's reading like books that even I had not read. Freud, you know, all of the like big white European thinkers, she's got them. All of the Caribbean thinkers from C.L.R. James, Fanon, Sylvia Winter, she's got them. Angela Davis, she read so widely. She was involved in so many movements and supported them, whether it be Central America, Brazil, Vietnam, all of these places in the world. And she didn't just read about the movements, but she would like get the poetry and she would like get the literary works to learn, really learn about what these societies are. And I was so inspired by that because I feel like, you know, we, today we, we, we're in solidarity with this and that place, but sometimes we can't even pick them out on the map. You know, we're, we don't even know like who, who are their, their thinkers or what is their poetry like? We don't know those questions, even though we live in the so-called information age. How did she make time or find it important to not just be a supporter of the Vietnamese war for liberation, but to read like classic Vietnamese, <laughs> you know, literature <laughs> as part of that? That's amazing to me that she had that vision to do all of those things. So I just wanted people to know that someone like her existed and that she did that while knitting, like baking cakes 
you know, tending to her family in ways that, you know, might be perceived as like domestic, you know, domestic, that she did that while performing all of this domestic work and went off into these housing projects to sit alongside, you know, poor women and take care of their kids while they read some of her books. I was just like, wow. <laughs> and she's also like, you know, she's she was petite. She was just, you know, her the way she used language. You know, I just felt enamored by who she was. And I was like, more people need to know that somebody like this existed. I was just, just a little tired of this idea that Black women, you know, aren't feminists or that feminists aren't Marxists and Marxist feminists who are Black weren't internationalists and that you couldn't occupy all of these spaces. And if you did all of that, you were abandoning your family as part of that project. I mean, she somehow managed to be in all of these spaces and to talk to people about their spirit, their, you know, because if you're doing all of that, certainly you're abandoning yourself, right? That's the other thing. Like If you're doing all of that stuff, certainly you're not grounded <laughs> in, you know, your own spiritual well-being. But to be all of that and to have a spiritual practice and a holistic health practice on top of all of that, I was just like, look, this is the woman that Black America, white America, all America needs to know existed. And especially for us Black folk at this moment, she is that figure that can bring in the world, right? She was concerned with the world. She's not just about what was happening in the U.S. She was talking about and thinking about the world. At the time where we're talking about borders and walls, she was bringing in the world. So I really felt like this was the time to bring a figure like her to the larger public. And it's a challenge because she doesn't have any name recognition. You know, you say her name, no one knows who she is. <laughs> but I do hope through things like this, opportunities like this, thank you so much for having me. You know, the the film, the showing the film in a format where young people can get excited about who she was is another way preserving the archives. Um, doing what we can to preserve them in the home state and eventually connecting them to a place where a larger public can have access to her story is also part of it. And writing the book, you know, writing the book that tells the world, you know, who this amazing um, activist was. Oh, that is a lot. <laughs> I have to sit on that and just, because I feel like, you know, there's so many people online now who are kind of like branding their social activism. Mm -hmm. And to see like this remarkable woman that not a lot of people know about. Not only she was like, you know, she talked her talk, she walked her walk, and she literally went in the trenches to do the work. Yep. And that is a lot. <laughs> like she dedicated her life to it, you know, and 
And yeah. so, wow, that's amazing. So I am yeah. looking forward to watching this documentary. I hope we are able to set up something so we can, you know, watch it as a group online or like Zoom or something like that. And I'm looking forward to your book because I, I cannot wait to review it. Thank you. Um, what do you teach, by the way? Well, I'm at Lehman College and I teach courses in um, U.S. history focusing on African-American history. So I have courses on the civil rights and Black power movement. I have Black women in the U.S., I have, um, I've taught a course on the U.S. War in Vietnam and history and memory, and I've taught African-American heritage. So I teach those type of courses at Lehman. What are some books you recommend that you read on your leisure time that you enjoy? Well, I have, I have so many favorite authors. I love Edwige Dandekat, um, the Haitian author. She has so many brilliant, wonderful books. So I have been slowly trying to read everything that she has written. <laughs> One of my favorites is called Claire of the Sea Light. So I want to recommend that. I love Jasmine Ward. Uh, she is an author based in Mississippi. She one of her most well-known books. I think it won the National Book Award called Salvage the Bones. And it was about a Black family in the few days before Hurricane Katrina. It's a brilliant book. I love all of her books. I think her writing has spoken to me like almost no one's writing has done in forever. I just got a great big volume of poetry by Lucille Clifton. I love Lucille Clifton and her poetry. And so I want to recommend her uh, for people who like to read, read poetry as well. And because of the loss of Toni Morrison, I'm revisiting some of her books as well. Um, I read some of her older books that we, I think maybe we, hopefully, I want to say we all read, but I'm hoping that we all read. Um, but I had not read some of her later works, um, like Jazz and Paradise, and things like that. So I'm reading some of her books that were a little later in her writing career. So I'm reading those, those as well. You know, I was watching a, um, I went to go see Angela Davis at, um, in Philly, for a Dr. King uh, remembrance. And I saw her recently, I think it was a few days ago, no, last weekend, where she and Nikki Giovanni were talking on a live stream. And I love the way Nikki Giovanni talks about Toni Morrison. Like mm -hmm. she talks about Toni Morrison like she's still with us. And that's very touching. Mm -hmm. Like she doesn't like she doesn't talk about her like she's part of the past. She talks about her like she's here with us right now. She she I I picked up on that right away. Like she talked about Tony in the present tense. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
I love it. I love it. There's been so many amazing moments of community that have come out. You would think that these boxes that we interact are through now in the era of social distancing, you know, these computers would make things feel so separate, but there have been definite moments of sisterhood that I've experienced watching some of these events and podcasts and um, Facebook lives and things like that. So I look forward to perhaps working with you to put together something like that for a PAT screening. Yes. I am looking forward to it as well. So we're going to see what we can do. We, I'm pretty sure we can do something really awesome that people will really enjoy and have like a discussion about it. Because I, I, I really believe people will enjoy learning this information about her. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's a like her her existence is a is a testimonial to to black women just doing all the work and not getting credit for it, the proper credit. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's so many people like her. That's why I was like, I have to I have to write about her. I have to become her biographer because her archives were available. There's so many women who've done this work, but then the stuff that you can have, the evidence to be able to prove what they did is not there anymore. And to have the proof, to have her books, to have her papers, to have her the stuff she underlined and her notes and her spindles and you know all that stuff is as a gift is a testimony to the preservation spirit of her family. So I'm happy to um, help cultivate, you know, Pat's wildflowers. Hopefully the more will spring up. <laughs> more will spring You know what? I love a good book. Like if I get a book from like discarded from the library, you know how like libraries do their sales and it's like a dollar for a book. I love when I open a book and it's like, marked up where people have like put notes and stuff like that because I like to see when I read a book what part of this book really spoke out to this person that they had to like underline it yes definitely I love that too um it just gives you a sense of the history of the book I think sometimes with now libraries and stuff it's you know we encourage people not to do those things but I like seeing that stuff You know, when you get a used book, it's almost like you're in someone else's mind. Yes. It's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time out to talk to me about Pat Robinson. She is such a badass and definitely a superhero in every uh, which way of the word presents itself. Um, I can't wait to learn even more about her. And I I am looking forward to this online viewing of this documentary so we can all talk about it. I'm so excited. Yes, yes, it's coming. (laughs) It's coming. So I want to thank you, Dr. Spencer, for spending time with me to talk about this 
um, this amazing radical black woman that we all need to be acquainted with. Um, I thank you for your time. I appreciate the history lesson. <laughs> this was so informative and so cool. I appreciate everything. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time and reaching out and following through. I know it's not easy. We're not in a moment where, you know, we're in a crisis moment and um, our homes have become workspaces and our families, our family work continues, the joys, the work. So um, it's a befitting conversation, I think, to have. <laughs> Yes, it is. Like, we have to continue. Like Angela Davis said, like, we still have to do the work. We have to do the work. You know, freedom is not free. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely not free. So thank you again. Um, I hope everybody listening, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation. Um, Dr. Spencer, is there a way people can reach out to you online? Like, do you have a Twitter, um, an email, a website, yes, yes. a blog. Perfect. So, yes, please reach out to me. I am on Twitter. I am at Race Womanist. So, R A C E, woman, W A M A N I S T. I'm also on email at robin.spencer at lehman.cuny.edu. And it's Robin with a Y. Dot Spencer at Lehman.cuny, C-U-N-Y, dot E-D-U. And I also have a website, which is just www.robin, uh, hmm. sorry. That's okay. I'm following <laughs> you on Twitter right now. Okay, great. I have to make sure. I'm like, do I have my middle initial in my website page or not? I think it's www.robincspencer, but I'm going to see. Yeah, www.robincspencer.com. So www.robincspencer.com. All right, well, thank you. I hope you enjoy your day. Stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy the rest of your week. All right, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Bye.